Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content, but their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at BehindTheKnife.org. Applications are due February 13th. Okay, welcome to Behind the Knife podcast. Today we're going to discuss uh, intrahepatic carcinoma. As usual, I'll introduce my colleagues. Dr. Caitlin Hester is an assistant professor of surgery in the Division of Surgical Oncology at the University of Miami uh, in the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center. Uh, and Gilbert, Dr. Gilbert uh, Marimwa is a uh, research resident right now and a PGY3 uh, surgical resident at the University of Texas Southwestern. I'd like to welcome both of you to the podcast. So today we're going to be discussing the workup and interoperative thought process uh, for patients who present with intrahepatic carcinoma. I guess we'll get we'll get started right away with you, Gilbert. And how do these patients typically present or commonly present with with ICC or intrahepatic carcinoma? Yeah, thanks for uh, the introduction. So, although intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is the second most common primary cancer of the liver, and it originates in the intrahepatic biliary system, patients with uh, ICC rarely present with symptoms consistent with obstructive jaundice, including pruritus, jaundice, and alcoholic stools acolic stools. Unfortunately, the patient's symptoms are often indolent and nonspecific, uh, oftentimes leading to delayed diagnosis in many cases and five-year overall survival rates that are less than 10%. Yeah, and I think that's a key point. A lot of the times we're seeing these patients in clinic who present essentially with um, just imaging done for another reason. So, Caitlin, how, after you have kind of a suspicion that you have a patient in your clinic who presents with a liver mass, and typically it can be for totally an, an, another reason and asymptomatic, um, that your concern is the patient has an intrahepatic carcinoma. Walk us through what your thought process, and especially it's interesting as you're a new faculty or a new surgical oncologist, what's your thought process and how you work up these patients? I think the most important first step is to obtain really good quality axial imaging of the abdomen and pelvis. Uh, whether that be CT or MRI, I think that's dealer's choice, but you need really good contrasted imaging using multiphase uh, axial images. The role of imaging in intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is twofold. One, it gives further insight into the tumor characteristics and can differentiate hepatocellular cancer versus intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma based on arterial enhancement and washout patterns. 
And two, it allows determination of resectability based on the location of the lesion within the liver and also, also multifocality. In addition, since intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is oftentimes a diagnosis of exclusion, it is important to evaluate for a primary malignancy, including colorectal cancer, gastric cancer, or other HPV malignancies. Along those lines, typically, most patients will undergo both lower and upper endoscopy. In addition to imaging, including a chest CT for extensive uh, staging workup, tumor markers such as uh, CA199, CEA, and AFP are oftentimes uh, sent as part of the staging workup. Yeah, and I think it's 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 really a diagnosis of, of exclusion uh, when you're trying to work these patients up. A little bit of a controversial question, and, and what is kind of the role of biopsy? Uh, we obtain biopsies in a lot of solid organ tumors, uh, but when you're having a high suspicion of a patient having intrahepatic carcinoma, what's the role of a biopsy? So a preoperative biopsy is not always necessary, especially if it if there's a single localized tumor, non-multifocal tumor, that is uh, a potential candidate for curative resection in the proper clinical setting. However, I do think if there's multifocality or evidence of disease not amenable to surgical resection, I think a biopsy uh, is prudent. So once there's a, a, a more certainty of the diagnosis of intrahepatic carcinoma, either that's a biopsy, which typically will come back frustratingly as is just a pancreatic or biliary malignancy. Um, so once you have that biopsy results or you have an additional clinical picture, especially the axial imaging, as I'll describe to people, it looks more like cauliflower um, within, within the actual imaging uh, pictures themselves. It's really, I think we can put these patients into three distinct categories or probably two distinct categories folks with, or patients that present with resectable disease. And then I think you can lump together patients with unresectable disease um, or metastatic disease. Um, so let's delve into each or the two major categories one at a time. Uh, and Gilbert, in a patient that you think has resectable intrahepatic carcinoma, um, is there any role for neoadjuvant therapy, which seems to be very hot in HPB malignancies? Yeah, so um, although neoadjuvant therapy for resectable HPV malignancies is a hot topic right now for clinical trials, um, it's not the standard of care for patients who have resectable intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. Um, a recently presented study, the NeoGAP, was reported demonstrating that patients with resectable ICC with high-risk features, including tumor size greater than 5 centimeters, multifocality, presence of major vascular invasion, or regional lymphadenopathy, uh, who received triplet, gemcitabine, cisplatin, and napaclitaxel prior to their resection had a partial response rate of 27%, and the disease control rate was 90%. And so unfortunately, due to the relatively um, low amount or paucity of ICC cases, it remains to be seen if larger neoadjuvant trials specific to intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma can be carried out to answer this important question. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. I think if we, if if, fo if we end up giving neoadjuvant therapy, and it could be that you want to downstage the patient a little bit um, for a lesser resection, it, I think you have to know a priori how many cycles you're going to give. Most of us will typically give uh, anywhere between six to eight cycles, so for about two and a half to three months. 
Um, so you kind of have to know that up front and discuss this in a multidisciplinary nature with your oncologist and, and usually within some sort of tumor board conference. Um, I'm going to turn the tables a bit, Dr. Yope. What patients are you treating with neoadjuvant chemotherapy for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma? Well, it's, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the patients that we see just because of our nature of our, our system have already been started on neoadjuvant therapy. Um, so we're usually seeing them after one or two cycles of neoadjuvant therapy if they're being diagnosed within the community. And then we're seeing them and then we'll allow them to actually go through the entire six to eight cycles of, of chemotherapy. If we see a patient up front, typically it's those patients where it may be the difference between doing a, uh, say, an extended a trisect shin resection, either an extended right or an extended left hepatectomy, even though the response rates, as, as Gilbert had said, aren't really that great. So it, it can be a little bit of a feel more than anything else. I, I don't think there'll ever be a neoadjuvant trial specifically for ICC. Um, there are currently three or four trials um, worldwide, none within the United States that are actually accruing patients. Um, so it's typically in those patients that where I would call borderline, but borderline is always in the kind of the eye of the beholder. We don't have very simple borderline guidelines like pancreas. So we're in the OR now, presumably with a resectable intrahepatic angiocarcinoma. And I think it, it's important to kind of determine how we're going to decide on our operative approach. Caitlin, what, what are you thinking or can you walk us through an operative approach for a patient that presents say, a solitary ICC? Given the relatively high incidence of finding radiographically occult metastatic disease, um, I always start these operations with a diagnostic laparoscopy within uh, at the same time of, as the index operation. Once we confirm there's no evidence of extrahepatic peritoneal disease, I think the tenets of the hepatic resection are similar to other partial hepatectomies. You want to achieve a negative margin resection, and you want to leave adequate future liver remnant. Given that this cohort of patients, unlike patients with hepatocellular cancer, uh, do not have underlying cirrhosis uh, and usually have not received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, Leaving a future liver remnant of 30% is perfectly reasonable, reasonable in this uh, population. And I, I think that, you know, whatever the surgeon feels most comfortable with regarding technique of resection, whether that's robotically or open, I think both achieve uh, equivalent oncologic outcomes. Yeah, and I think that's important. Every institution has their um, kind of their preference for whether they want to do minimally invasive or an open procedure, I think oncologically they have exactly the same, and that's been demonstrated in multiple other cancer types. So there's no difference, I, I think, in intrahepatic angiocarcinoma. Um, so a little more kind of one easy question maybe, and then one a little more controversial is, is Kaylin, what are the some of the prognostic factors when we get you know, when we get the specimen back, what are we looking for in the path result that may be associated with survival in this patient population? Yeah, in multiple retrospective studies, positive margin status, uh, multifocal disease, vascular invasion, and lymph node involvement <clears throat> were all independently associated with decreased survival. Specifically, a margin greater than or equal to one centimeter was associated with both improved recurrence-free and overall survival. 
With regards to routine use of lymphadenectomy during the index operation for resection of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, I think there's perhaps no bigger controversial topic in HPB surgical oncology. Although lymph node metastases uh, in this cohort of patients approaches 65% in studies, and a lymph node dissection obtaining six lymph nodes is recommended by the NCCN, there is a lack of level one evidence demonstrating that routine lymphadenectomy either changes the treatment algorithm or improves overall survival. The main benefit appears to be accurate staging, providing patients with reliable prognostic information. And if you remember staging for cholangiocarcinoma, lymph node involvement is considered stage 4A. So typically, we will perform a lymphadenectomy clearing the entirety of the soft tissue in the porta hepatis, including stations 8 and 12. And then for left-sided ICC, it is important to clear the nodal stations around the gastric cardia and lesser curve of the stomach. And for right-sided tumors, oftentimes the lymphatic drainage can be uh, to the retropancreatic or retroduodenal region. Yeah, and I think this has really been a paradigm shift over the last 10 years. If you look back at some of the retrospective data, there's still the vast majority of of patients undergoing resection for intrahepatic angiocarcinoma actually don't have a proper lymph node dissection with six or greater nodes. Um, And I, you know, as you mentioned, Kaylin, it is an incredibly hot topic. Is this really changing how we're going to treat patients or is this more just giving more prognostic information for patients on how, how they will do in the future? It's really kind of unknown at this point. But I think still the standard of care is, is to do the lymph node dissection. So Gilbert, now that you've done the resection, you've done the partial hepatectomy, you know, you've, you've decided, you've bought into the lymph node dissection, and you've completed this, what's next? What, what, what are you counseling the patient as far as, you know, patients will want to know, is there a role for me to get further therapy or adjuvant therapy? And what does that consist of? Yeah, absolutely. So the current recommendation for adjuvant therapy in patients undergoing curative intent resection for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma is uh, six months of chemotherapy, uh, typically consisting of capcitabine. And I think that's based on the BILCAP trial, or I think most folks will, will, will use capecitabine. So can you elaborate a little bit on the findings of the BILCAP trial that led to these recommendations of adjuvant therapy? Yeah, the BILCAP trial was um, it was a randomized phase three clinical trial in the United Kingdom. Uh, I believe it had 447 patients with cholangiocarcinoma, and they were randomized to either adjuvant capcitabine or surveillance. And although only 19% of the patients were actually intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, there was a significant overall survival benefit in the group that was treated with capecitabine, um, coming out to 53 versus 36 months. And so thus, it's currently the standard of care for adjuvant therapy. And it's important to note that the use of radiation adjuvant therapy has not shown to offer any benefit and outcomes for these patients. Um, I do think it's important for this BILCAP study. This survival advantage was only seen in the per-protocol cohort. So when you actually look at the intention-to-treat cohort, the uh, overall survival advantage was uh, not statistically significant. Yeah, that's incredible. I was just going to mention that's incredibly important to to mention. It's it's amazing that... um, you know, we do treat right now the standard of care um, and, and the NCCN guidelines is to give adjuvant capecitabine. Um, however, you know, when you look at it, 19% of the patients out of 447, so 
you know, you do the math and it works out to be about 80 patients were actually randomized within that trial. So a very small amount of patients, but it was enough when maybe we're kind of reaching at straws a little bit um, with the adjuvant therapy. But I think the side effect profile with capecitabine is so low um, and the benefit may be there um, that it's worth doing for six months. So Gilbert, one last question, and then before we switch gears to non-resectable or metastatic intrahepatic angiocarcinoma, how do you surveil this patient going forward after you've actually done the resection? So typically we'll image with chest, abdomen, pelvis, uh, axial imaging every three to six months for two years, and then every six to 12 months thereafter. So despite a R0 resection, the risk of recurrence intrahepatically and within the lungs remains quite high depending on the biology of the original resection specimen. Yeah, and I think that's important. I think it's they typically will recur uh, intrahepatically um, within the lungs, as you mentioned, and also within the bone. We don't typically do bone scans routinely, uh, but during their history and physical, when we're seeing these patients, we're very cognizant to ask if you're having any lower back pain or rib pain, because um, it can be um, the first sign of metastatic disease. So really, for such a nihilistic disease, um, I think that for the first time, um, there's some recent brightness in the clouds for the patients who present with metastatic or, or an unresectable intrahepatic angiocarcinoma. Currently, as of uh, the late 2022, there are current two current regimens uh, recommended in this cohort of patients, the first one being gemcitabine and cisplatinin. And then the second one, the more recent one, was the addition of uh, Dravirlamab, uh, a PDL1 inhibitor, to GEMCIS. Let's first start talking about the GEMCIS regimen and the trial first published in 2010 uh, that led until very recently being the only effective therapy for intrahepatic angiocarcinoma. Caitlin, can you discuss a little bit of the findings from this trial? So the trial you are referring to is the ABC02 trial that was uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in, in 2010. Similar to most trials in patients with advanced biliary cancers, they grouped most of the biliary cancers together. Um, and then patients received either gemcitabine alone or combination gemcis. The median survival was 11.7 months in the combination arm and eight months in the gemcitabine alone arm, and uh, statistical significance was obtained. Only 80 patients with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma were included in the study. However, in a subgroup analysis, receipt of combination gemcis chemotherapy was associated with improved survival compared to gemcitabine alone. This combination has remained the standard of care for patients with advanced or metastatic intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma until recently. Yeah, and I think that's important. Really, for the first time, it, the exciting thing is, is in late 2022, for the first time in over a decade, a new regimen has actually demonstrated efficacy in this cohort of patients. Gilbert, what can you discuss or expound a little bit on the recent Topaz-1 trial findings? Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, late 2022, the findings of the Topaz-1 trial were released, and they demonstrated that adding Dervalumab, a pdl one inhibitor, in combination with GEMCIS was associated with improved overall survival compared to gemcitabine and cisplatin alone. I remember this got a lot of press when it first came out, and a lot of the uh, Twitterati, so to speak, were very excited by it. But upon reading a little more into it, um, there are some serious concerns with with the findings. 
Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that, Gilbert? Yeah, so despite reaching statistical significance, the difference in overall survival between the two groups was actually quite modest. Uh, patients receiving Dervalumab in addition to Gemsys had a median overall survival of 12.8 months compared to 11.5 months in the Gemsys group alone. And given the increase of only six weeks in survival, it remains to be seen if the addition of immunotherapy in this group of patients is actually clinically significant. Likely additional trials where patients are selected based on a profile more conducive to response to immunotherapy will improve survival outcomes, and we are eagerly awaiting the results of these trials that, that should read out in the near future. Yeah, I think the, the most important trial that's going to read out, it should read out probably middle of this year or early next year is, is the keynote trial with Pembro, Pembrolizumab, which is another PD-1 or immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitor in this group. So it'll be interesting to see um, what the results of this trial will be. Really, obviously, the holy grail in all cancer treatment is to find actionable mutations um, in patients with advanced uh, or unresectable disease. And really, and then target these mutations, this, this idea of personalized medicine, so to speak. Um, and there's been a fair amount of studies using either next generation sequencing techniques or RNA sequencing that have highlighted the, het the molecular heterogeneity of intrahepatic angiocarcinoma. Um, I think in most studies, about one out of four, 25% of tumors are really, are, do have actionable mutations. And this really drives home the point or the need for getting a core needle biopsy and, and then sequencing the tumors in patients with this disease in this cohort of patients with advanced or metastatic intrahepatic angiocarcinoma uh, when they're first being diagnosed. Caitlin, can you, I know this is near and dear to your heart uh, with genetic mutations, especially in hepatobiliary cancers. Can you kind of go over the most common actual mutations and where we stand with some of the targeted agents? Yeah, I think, you know, more and more academic centers and NIH designated cancer centers are uh, getting biopsies and, and trying to understand more and more the mutational landscape of uh, these tumors. And I think we're doing this both in the locally advanced and metastatic setting, but also there's a huge drive to really understand even the um, localized resectable tumors as well. What we do know about intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas and cholangiocarcinomas in general is that most of the mutations mimic other GI tumors. So the most common mutations you're going to see are TP53, KRAS, MAD4. Usually there's a mutation rate at about four, 25 to 45% for each of those type of mutations within the cholangiocarcinoma. But I think what's more exciting for the, you know, unresectable and metastatic setting and then eventually in the resectable uh, setting is understanding the, the targetable mutations that are in these tumors. And we know for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, the most common mutations um, are FGFR2 and IDH1 among the targetable mutations. Um, FGFR2 uh, occurs at about 10 to 15 percent. IDH1 is 13 percent. And then um, MS uh, microsatellite uh, status is also really important and is targetable and occurs in about 5 percent of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas, as well as things like HER2 amplification, which occurs in 5 percent of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas and even a higher extent in gallbladder cancers. And then looking at NTRK fusions and amplifications. 
And all of these offer the ability to target these specific mutations in these tumors. And as of now, the evidence only allows us to treat these in second-line settings, so patients who have gotten first-line standard of care treatment who have progressed then can go on to receive these targetable agents um, in the second-line setting. But I think more and more in the future, we'll be seeing these as uh, first-line and then eventually, potentially, even in the new adjuvant setting for these tumors. That was a great review. That was awesome, Caitlin, on the on the genetic mutations. I think it's incredibly exciting. I'm I'm excited for both you and uh, Gilbert as you're kind of both interested in this field and studying the genetic mutations, because uh, I think we're going to make some incredible strides in how we care for patients with uh, intrahepatic angiocarcinoma. So I think we could all the highlights. Is there anything else that anybody wants to to add to intrahepatic angiocarcinoma? I don't think so. I think this has been a great review and it's been really fun to be back with my Sir Jonk family uh, for this podcast. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm just hoping one day that I will be working for either Gilbert or or Caitlin as they uh, as they progress through the, the world of surgical oncology. Thank you so much for every, for listening and to Caitlin and Gilbert for working very hard on this. Thanks, guys. Bye. Have a great time, guys. Thanks. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.